You're listening to the Global Ed Podcast, where educators share inspiring and thought-provoking stories from around the world. In this episode, I speak with Rachel, an international school principal and former school director of the Pechersk School International, or PSI, in Kyiv, Ukraine. Rachel was school director when Russian forces invaded Ukraine, forcing her and the school team to lead the community through an unimaginable situation. Rachel, welcome to the Global Ed Podcast. Thank you so much, Gavin. It's a privilege to have an opportunity to share some experiences and perspectives. Absolutely. Uh, I can't wait to hear what you have to share with us. But before we get started, I think it's fair to say that you're an experienced international educator. Could you just give me a tour of all the places that you've taught in, please? Started in uh, inner city London, way back when. Um, and then my first international assignment was in uh, the Caribbean, in uh, Santo Domingo. Following that, I was in Istanbul, Turkey. Wonderful. Uh, then from there, we had some time in Italy, a couple of years in Turin and then in Milan. Following that, we went off to Guangzhou in China. Uh, from China was uh, Pretoria, South Africa at the American International School of Johannesburg. From there uh, to PSI in Kiev, Ukraine. And I'm currently at the American International School in Bucharest here in Romania. Wow, what an incredible list of places that you've taught in. Um, I just want to go back to when you're in Johannesburg and um, thinking about moving to a new school. What was it that attracted you to Kiev um, and Ukraine? Um, I was looking towards a return to somewhere in Europe uh, for various reasons, one being our son having graduated and moving to university. And there were quite a lot of options. But when I saw Ukraine, I had visited Kyiv actually as a student myself when I was 18 and uh, a long time ago. So um, way back when it was still a, a part of the Soviet Union. Um, but it was an extraordinary visit and I was overwhelmed by its beauty and the cultural aspects of Ukraine and, and the city of Kyiv were phenomenal as well. Additionally, I had had a, a very dear friend who was the very first diploma program coordinator there who recommended the school very highly um, and, and other folks who had had connections with the school or even worked at the school who also promoted it in a very positive manner. So it seemed like a, a wonderful community to to have the possibility of joining. Welcome to beautiful city of Kiev. My name is Julia and I'm gonna be our guide here. Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, is one of the most fascinating and underrated places in all Europe. Life in Kiev was uh, wonderful. It's a beautiful city, uh, very varied, eclectic uh, place. Uh, we lived in a wonderful location close to the school and opposite Holosiewski Forest, which is a national park. Uh, so that was a stunning place to reside. Um, there was so much to engage with in terms of opera, uh, musical events, wonderful, dynamic, modern food culture combined with the traditional that Ukrainians also love so much. Um, I really loved it. Uh, wonderful social life, um, a very, very active place to be. And life at the school, I, I guess, similar. Honestly, we had a very vibrant community. Um, we had lots of uh, positive interactions with the local community that added interest 
to every school day. Um, and we had a, a phenomenal community of, of teaching staff, families, um, operational team, and of course, our, our students uh, who are, you know, key to it all. What was the makeup of students in terms of nationalities? I'm sure it was um, diverse and varied. And I'm really interested to know if you had many Russian students who were attending the school. Sure. We had a uh, 70% more or less of our population was non-Ukrainian. So around 30% Ukrainian. Um, And we had, crikey, I don't want to get it wrong now, but we definitely had over 60 nationalities at the school. And yes, of course, we had... uh, Uh, many Russian, many Russian families with us. Ukraine's leaders try today to reassure their population, despite more than 100,000 Russian troops deployed near the nation's northern and eastern borders, and despite new announcements of Russian training exercises. The U.S. and Western countries consider an invasion as possibly imminent. I want to move on to talk about when rumours of a potential invasion or conflict started to gather some momentum. Was there a different feeling this time around? Was the school community getting a sense of unease and how did that develop? Levels of nervousness and concern started to rise from probably the end of October when and then mid-November, you might remember, satellite images were shared of these huge buildups of Russian troops on borders. And in particular, the border with Belarus was what was causing concern. Um, and so from that point onwards, it became a mul- multiple times a day, there would be conversations around that. And it became a focus for our governance, for our, our board of trustees and the leadership team. Um, and that's when our conversations with the, the various embassies um, ramped up um, and when we began to consider what we needed to do to be prepared in the eventuality that something did go in a direction that none of us wanted. But at that time, I would suggest it was mo- more about being prepared for the worst, but we were still pretty sure that we were going to, we could hope for the best. That, that's the honest truth. A Western intelligence official tells NBC News Russia tonight has 112 to 120,000 troops on Ukraine's borders in 60 battalion tactical groups. With more, maybe many more on the way. With the ongoing news reports about the build-up of Russian forces on the border, did people think that it could lead to a full-scale invasion or did they still see it as being limited to just the eastern side? I think that most people were of the impression that the the invasion, the, the, the larger scale invasion would, would continue to impact more on the east. Um, I think the vast majority of people did not believe that there would be an attack on the capital city. Um, I even spoke with one of the deputy mayors just a couple of weeks beforehand and the Kiev administration, at least from what I understood, was also relatively confident at that time that it would not uh, involve an invasion of the city itself, the capital city itself. Um, We then saw the embassies, uh, who of course were one of our triggers in terms of if we were to ever launch an evacuation, and we had very different responses from them, which complicated how we in turn took took action. Um, So there was a relative amount of, uh, I would say, confusion around what, what the outcome would be. The pressure for you and other leaders within the school must have been immense. 
Did you have a particular approach that you decided to take to try and deal as best as you can with this unimaginable situation? Well, I think every day when you're a leader, you sometimes can allow yourself to to think about worst case scenarios, and that's never good. But uh, so I decided best was to, to concentrate on, our, as I suggested, on being prepared and being prepared in every way in terms of our relationships, in terms of our protocols, in terms of business continuity plans. Um, and that was really where my attention went. And But, but I was nervous. Um, I, I was one of the folks who did not believe that there would be a full-scale invasion and that would impact the capital city and, the, and other areas in Ukraine beyond the eastern parts. Um, and that was mainly because of the, the people I was uh, speaking with. Um, but uh, definitely, we took it seriously. Uh, and yes, it certainly was something that would... Uh, cause you to have a few sleepless nights, that's for sure. After months of preparations, the Russian President Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. Speaking on national television, Mr Putin urged Ukrainian troops to lay down their arms and go home. He warned that anyone who interfered in Russia's actions would face retaliation. Loud explosions have been now heard in Ukraine. We, uh, when the uh, five of the embassies uh, decided that it was time for their staff to be, um, I wouldn't say evacuated, but to, to, to leave to leave the country, we realized that things were ramping up. Um, and we, we stayed as a small group. We did allow, uh, in terms of our leadership and our local teachers, and we had about half of our students still, interestingly, because as I say, there was a split between the embassies and many of the corporations and, and uh, stayed stayed in, in the city as well. Um, but when the US, the Canadian, the New Zealand, the Australian and the British embassies moved their folks, of course, it started to feel really serious. We had to adjust super quickly um, and we allowed all of our uh, folks to decide if they wanted to stay or go, regardless of their nationality and which embassy, let's say, they were connected to. And as I suggested earlier, many of them did depart. So we had of over 70 overseas hires at that point. I think we had about 15, 17 of us left. Um, and I remember one of those leadership team members one day saying, I'm feeling a little as though we're living on borrowed time here. Russian troops are closing in on the capital. Their military vehicles have been filmed entering the city. And in the last few hours, multiple explosions have been reported. The moment when we realised that was it was, was, was actually when the invasion happened very early on that, that morning of uh, that February morning in 2022. Streams of people in cars and on foot have been crossing from Ukraine into Poland, Romania and Hungary. But tonight, all eyes are on Kiev. There have been exchanges of fire in the north of the city, which was reached by an advance party of Russian troops. Ukrainian authorities say 18,000 machine guns have been handed out to volunteers who want to defend their capital. Uh, we had one of our own teachers who, who, who evacuated in the midst of a Russian attack and saw some very horrific things happening. So it was very, it, it came very close to the city. In our first report tonight, our correspondent Nick Beek looks at the day the nation's capital came under attack. The early sirens wailed in Ukraine's capital once more, but this was no rude awakening. No one had been able to sleep. 
the initial impact was one of of shock but but i i think we went into um we just went into action mode fortunately the preparedness really helped so i remember i actually don't remember the first call i made but i remember i was receiving messages from some of our um employees who were still there whether they were Ukrainian or some of our folks who were married to Ukrainians of course had stayed because the Ukrainians were still working in in all of the other employment um you know positions that they had um and messages were just piling onto my phone and I was in Italy and I actually just woke up a little bit early and saw these messages and uh, realized what was going on that would have been pretty full on to wake up to um reading everything that was coming through what was your first thoughts about how you should react um my first thoughts were i've got to we've got to help these folks because kiev's under attack which was just the most extraordinary thought to be having and so that's what we did so um we we had a plan in place we um sent out a blast to everybody that you must we have told you to go to the school the school is a safe haven we have underground areas we had purchased um satellite phones blankets beds food supplies you know everything that you can imagine net thinking we would never use them or we'd use them for other things right but they were there so so we did have people as soon as they could i mean nobody knew whether it was safe or not to go out but many people moved towards the school um with their family members um and of course these things only you only realize at the time it's not just going to be your employees it's going to be their families uh their pets babies um you know so we had a at one point we had over 50 folks on the campus uh living uh in the shelters that we had prepared um so our first thoughts was their safety absolutely this and what we could do to help the second thought was we need to pay people because we don't know what's going to happen with payment systems with the banks with everything and our business manager at the time was outstanding absolutely phenomenal human being she was actually on the way to the carpathian mountains with her little girl and her mother to try to get them to safety and managed to uh secure 3 months of payment for everybody so at least that was one thing that people didn't have to be concerned about so that they could access funds and the next thing of course was communicating out to the community about what we were doing what was going on and what our plans would be and we learned through the pandemic i believe like everybody that you don't leave a void in communication because if you do someone will fill it uh for you and potentially with something you don't want it filled with so we made sure that we were um communicating um frequently with everybody even if it was just an update to say we don't know anything else yet bear with us um and then we huddled as a, a online virtually as leadership team and board members and we made plans for the monday that school should be starting again and we made the decision that we had to get back online as soon as possible um to focus in on the social emotional well-being of all of the students and so that was where our our, our focus quickly went was on to building plans to to make sure that that day ran smoothly um for everybody and of, and of course connecting with all of the folks who were all over the place at this point um either they'd been working virtually already or they had left the country during that vacation period or just prior to it and so we had to reconnect 
with everyone and and you can imagine the level of emotion that people had at that point. It's just unbelievable what you had to plan for and deal with and on top of all of that you'd have people's fears about how close the fighting was going to get to the city and then ultimately would it reach the school? Well it was very close to the city um, so yes uh, initially there was a lot and then as you know after a few days the Ukrainians managed to push the Russians back um, but initially, yes, there was a lot, uh, a lot of noise um, um, and a great deal of fear. Yeah, um, I just can't imagine what it would be like. Um, what you described about the infrastructure of the school, it sounds like there's already bomb shelters in the school. I mean, was the school built with that in mind? Did it already have those sorts of facilities that could be used if a situation like this arose? Fortunately, and through no, no specific um, intention or design, um, when the school was built, the, the storage spaces were all underground. And the newest building, which had been added in 2017, had an, also a, an underground swimming pool, plus offices, plus storage space, plus a, a medical room, etc. So we have under the, the, the whole school is a, a maze of rooms. And we had um, supplies, which we were storing under there. Um, yes, so we were able, and, and in fact, when people were down there, they were telling me because fortunately communications were never, never lost. Um, we, we had set up a telegram group so we could all be in touch with each other all the time. And people were reporting that once underground, you could hardly hear the explosions. So people were feeling, uh, far less anxious if they could be there. And, you know, there were quite high ceilings even in the swimming pool area it was lovely, right? Because um, it was a lovely high ceiling and it was a home space that just felt normal for folks. After you'd taken care of everybody's basic needs, of course, you're actually still running a school. Um, I'm not quite sure how you would do that under your circumstances, but what did you do? How did it look? And what were some of the complications and challenges that you had to overcome? Well, uh, I suppose the complication was just the that we had all of our students in different time zones, as well as our teachers. So we had to operate across, we had to organize ourselves differently and operate across time zones. So classes were, were um, obviously reorganized to allow for that. And teachers, we tried to allocate them within a time zone that was less, uh, you know, friend, was more friendly to, to their um to their reality, but there were some teachers who were who were up at ridiculous hours. You know, reminiscent of the COVID times and, and the impact that, that that had in different areas of the world. Um, we had a completely revised approach to our curriculum, um, but we moved forward, and the teachers were phenomenal, and the ch children did 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 very well. You must have been so proud of both your teachers and your students for the way that they rose to the challenge and met this adversity which they found themselves within. Um, now, I know that you got some help for some other schools as well as you walked this journey. So tell me how that came about, please. The first school to come forward uh, was the American International School of Zagreb, led by a wonderful director called Paul Buckley. And Paul contacted me and offered the opportunity for any of our students, in fact, any students from the CISA organization in Ukraine, because we weren't the only school impacted, uh, he offered them the opportunity to attend his campus free of charge through to the end of the school year, meaning that we could retain our school fees and children could, could benefit from a face-to-face -face learning experience. Uh, that 
wonderful offer, which families did take up, was then repeated across the CESA region and across the world. Uh, many, many schools came forward to offer their support. Another one in particular that was outstanding was the Benjamin Franklin School um, in Spain, led by Rachel Hovington, who offered two full years of, of support, uh, tuition-free, and also offered that to the children of some of our staff members. It really was a phenomenal um, example of collective care and absolute generosity. It must have been heartening for you to have received all of this support from professional colleagues, schools and other organisations, but it must have been still really, really tough for all of you and your staff and your students. So at this point in time, how was everybody coping? It's very hard. I think every child, like every adult, responded differently to the situation, but everybody knew this was how it had to be. And our dream was, of course, that we would all be coming back together uh, in PSI. And I think that at the time, that kept us that kept us motivated and, and enthused to keep it moving. And we just wanted the children to be with other students as much as possible, you know, because they'd been through so much during that isolation of the pandemic. And then to have something like this happen, it's exactly when you need to be social. Um, when these kinds of dramatic events are happening around you. And for, for, for many of them, especially our Ukrainian population, they had family members, especially fathers um, or brothers, you know, uncles, grandparents in many cases refused to move. Um, and they were, they were worried every minute of every day. So to have them in a school setting where, where there is good distraction was obviously really important. The damage of the war is big, it's devastation, they destroyed all the city, but the psychological aspect is also very important on the young generation. We needed each other more than you could ever imagine. Um, and I'm not sure we were that conscious of it at the time, but we did, we were contacted by another wonderful organization, Sea Change Mentoring, led by Ellen Mahoney. And Ellen uh, contacted us and supported us right from that first day. In fact, she met with us the Sunday before we came back to school. So this, the Sunday was directly after the full-scale invasion. And she and her team provided support for all of our, our staff members. Um, and that continued. So there was psychological support. And a lot of what they were saying to us was how we could, helping us with it was how we could emotionally support each other. For me, you know, playing with the kids, I forgot about everything. I can imagine the little children, you know, have some fun playing, running around, singing, uh, playing the different games. It's kind of the relief, just try to, through the game, forget about everything and just play and smile. Working with our community to establish whether we could uh, uh, operate from a satellite campus temporarily. That was the, the idea. And so working together with our parents and students and staff members, we established that the, the location that would be most practical would be Warsaw in Poland. Um, I'm, I'm making a very long story very short. We contacted the director at that school, John Zerflu. And again, this was one of these wonderful moments of without any hesitation, you know, can you imagine, can we come and open our school on your campus, please? Yes, of course you can. And, and we did. And I mean, the complications there, I'm sure you can imagine, we needed 
uh, our own facility on the grounds. They, of course, didn't have sufficient number of classrooms to just accommodate us in that sense. We had to um, establish how many students we would actually have enrolled. Then we needed to work out how many teachers and what they would be teaching. Um, then we worked together with the Warsaw School to, in some cases, have our students in the same class as their students, in some cases as um, separate units, as PSI students. Super complex. Again, it's funny, after the fact, you think about it more. While you're doing it, you just get on with it because you have to make it work. What was it like on the first day when all the students returned and saw each other for the first time? Because I'm guessing that they hadn't seen each other for a while. I think that first day back, the relief on their faces when they just saw each other and knew that each other was safe, I think I will remember for always. I'm sure it's a day that everybody who was there will remember forever. Um, how long were you uh, in that school for in the end? So we spent a whole year operating out of the American School of Warsaw. Um, and our um, enrollment grew over time. We did maintain an online program as well. Uh, and that was offered uh, in collaboration with Avenues, the World School. And again, that was a phenomenally generous offer um, that was made by their senior advisor, Tim Carr, to, to uh, enroll our students completely free of charge uh, in their extraordinary online platform. And so we managed that in um, in tandem, in parallel to the to the face to face learning that was happening in Warsaw. Now, this was always a temporary arrangement, um, being on the campus of the American School of Warsaw. So, what's the current status of PSI? Uh, the school is now reopened uh, in Kiev. Just a few weeks ago, they hit uh, 100 students enrolled on campus. We used to have a school of 550. But 100 enrolled um, in Kiev right now is quite remarkable. And the school, uh, if you, I would strongly recommend you follow them on social media because they continue to tell an exceptional story of resilience and fortitude and innovation. Uh, they're currently led by um, Trey Holland, who uh, became the director straight after me. Um, and they have a wonderful team of teachers and operational staff um, and extraordinarily supportive families. Uh, so the story continues and really it's a, it needs to be told now in real time as well as, as what's led up to this point. It is an incredible story and one that continues to be told. But as you reflect on your time as head of school for PSI, can you tell me some of the things that you learnt having gone through this experience? I've learnt that relationships are absolutely the most important thing. Being people-oriented and paying exquisite attention to that is phenomenally um, important in our lives as school directors, school principals. I've learned that communication is key. You have to communicate frequently, you have to be repetitive, you have to find as many different platforms as possible to reach with reach people. Uh, you have to have a dialogue as well, you have to listen. So communication has to be a two-way street. I've learned that uh, building trust is, is fundamental and that that's part of being prepared for when crisis occurs. Um, and I've learned that you should maintain hope and optimism. Um, again, I think bounded optimism was the word that was used during the 
during the pandemic because you don't want to try to sound it could be toxic in the sense that you're sounding a little ridiculous but a sense of optimism for the future is really important and i've learned that our students are extraordinary and they are absolutely what provides the motivation and the purpose behind all of this and i've learned that they have they deserve and absolutely have to have a strong voice in the community. They helped us to make so many of our decisions along the way. And we don't always give them credit for how wise they can be and for how much they know. I've learned the importance of a very strong connection between the head of school and the board of governors and how much that supported us and helped us through all of this. And of course, we had disagreements in private, but we were always united when we came to speak to our community. And uh, I was very grateful for each and every one of them. Uh, but through all of this in particular, our board chair, Peter Urban, who works for IFAS, was uh, outstanding in his um, clarity of thinking and his support for me, but also in his ability to think things through and make together with us very uh, sensible and wise decisions. And I think for anybody who uh, doesn't have that kind of intense and, and, and purposeful and meaningful relationship with your board work on it is my advice. It's really, really worth it. Thank you, Rachel, for sharing those insights with us. Uh, I just think it's so valuable to hear from you and what you've learned from your experience. As we head towards the end of the podcast, um, is there anything else that you'd like to add? There are a few thank yous I'd like to add to the list for sure, which are a sli in slightly different contexts. One of those was the Association for the Advancement of International Education, AAIE, um, led by Laura Light. And Laura invited me to one of the weekly director's sessions. And that was the um, trigger or the catalyst for a number of people getting in touch, offering support. Um, I already mentioned Tim Carr from Avenues, but also um, David Willows and Susan, uh, Suzette, I should say, Palaviet from Yellow Car, which is um, a wonderful organization that focuses in on strategy, um, experience strategy. And these two are the founding members of that organization and experts and consultants. And they supported us right through our experience at ASW, uh, helping us with ideas for um, our story, telling our story. And so they helped us significantly putting us in touch with an organization led by Miles Latham called Aphyxious Film who made a beautiful film of the experience from the just prior to the full-scale invasion through to when the school moved to Warsaw. And these were all so important to us um, in terms of the world knowing what was going on, but also for our morale and for our well-being as a community. Um, I also wanted to acknowledge uh, Deb Welsh from Carney Sando, the recruitment agency, because when, we, when I, ha I had decided prior to all of this that it was most likely going to be my last year. It was going to be my fifth year at PSI. Um, and then it was a very strange situation to find myself in um, because my loyalty to the school was very strong and the idea of leaving that community was so hard. But the decision was made and, and then we had to find a new director. Um, and Deb Welsh, I contacted her at Carney Sando and asked if she might support us. And then of course my fabulous line of, but Deb, we won't be able to pay you. Uh, <laughs> um, 
I have the response of I would have I would thought I would have thought you couldn't so please don't don't be concerned and she then went to the um, lengths of contacting search associates and ISS and for the first time in history those three different uh, recruitment agencies worked together to find the replacement for the school and they came up trumps with the fabulous Trey Holland so it's very important for me to say thank you to these people who have done so much for the survival of that wonderful school and its community. And someone else who supported um, relentlessly and continues to help the school is Dr. Andy Page-Smith, who was the former um, CEO of AISH, the Association for International School Heads. Uh, he's now working as a consultant. Uh, he worked as a coach for the board and for me. Um, free of charge, uh, pro bono for a whole year, and with extraordinary results for all of us as well. Uh, NAASC as well, the New England Association of Schools and Colleges. You're going to think this bit's a little bit unusual. We were in the middle of an accreditation process, uh, re-accreditation with NAASC and authorization with the IB. And of course, they offered us the opportunity to stop but we decided we wanted to keep going. And the support that we received from them to do so was phenomenal. And we had our, our accreditation visit in April of last year on the ASW campus. And the flexibility that both uh, NAASC and the IB showed was remarkable. And in particular, my thanks go to Darlene Fisher at NAASC, um, who was an extraordinary support through all of this. Um, and I know continues to be so as well. It's been an incredible and difficult journey that you and the school community have been on. Um, is there anything that you'd like to say to your colleagues back at PSI? Well, an enormous thank you uh, for everything that they gave to the community, to the students, and all, in all honesty, to me. They were phenomenal supports um, and they've become very special and beautiful friends. And um, we are in touch very often. And in fact, this summer, we're hosting a reunion at our home uh, in Italy. And I cannot wait to see, to see these people again. Um, they're remarkable, remarkable educators and beautiful human beings. As we finish off, what are your hopes for the PSI community? I hope that that school and its community continues for many, many years. And for those students, I, I wish them peace. Um, and I, I hope that they find and are offered opportunities to contribute to our world because they have so much. They've learned so much and they can give so much. Thank you, Rachel, for sharing your story and the story of PSI on the Global Ed Podcast. Next time on the Global Ed Podcast the imam of the mosque was like making an announcement. And at that time, I didn't really know enough Arabic to understand what, what was being said. And so this, this beautifully, wonderfully sweet lady from like two floors down in our apartment comes up the stairs and knocks on our door. And she says, you need to stay in your apartment. People are coming to kill you. In the next episode, I speak with Norris, a former high school principal based in Cairo. Norris shares the experiences of his international school when the Arab Spring led to the overthrowing of the Egyptian government. As a licensed lawyer, Norris also shares how he supports some expeditions to the United Nations for displaced people arriving from countries such as Sudan. 
If you have enjoyed listening to the Globe Led podcast, please subscribe and follow me, Gavin Kinch, on LinkedIn.